Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Pearson Center. This is our second webinar uh, talking about re-entering life after or during COVID. Um, we've had some wonderful sessions so far, and we're delighted that we have many coming on board to listen to our second webinar. And we've got some terrific guests as well who are going to speak and give us some of their advice and then some of their insight. Let me introduce those to you now. We have Jan Westcott, who's president and CEO of Spirits Canada, representing companies who make all those great things we drink, all kinds of whiskeys, rum, and gins. Frank Bayless is joining us. Frank is the executive chairman of Bayless Medical, a company that develops medical devices that's used predominantly in cardiac uh, and spinal procedures. He was also a former MP, we're delighted to say. Welcome, Frank. Jerry Diaz is joining us, and he is, most of us will know, the national president of Unifor, and that represents the largest private sector union in the country, everything from auto workers to frontline workers, and really he has been on the front line every day during this pandemic. We're delighted to welcome Ali Ahasi. Ali is a member of parliament for Willowdale, and we're delighted that he's joining us as parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Innovation, Science and Technology. And to round out this august group, we have our moderator, Heather Schofield, who will be very familiar to, to many of us who follow uh, the economy, especially as it's written. Um, she is with the Toronto Star, and prior to that had senior roles with CP, the Canadian Press, and the Globe and Mail. Welcome, Heather, and I'm turning this over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I am quite uh, uh, looking forward to this discussion because uh, obviously um, some of the miracles that we've seen in manufacturing have been have been front and center and it really has seemed like a miracle um, the speed at which some of the manufacturers have turned their attention and and the workforces have completely readjusted to to handling the pandemic. Um, and so I'm quite looking forward to to hearing some of these stories. I think last week um, the uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce working together with Statistics Canada showed that something like 12% of manufacturers had switched their production over to um, providing materials to fight the pandemic. And uh, I think um, at the the um, the government has said 6,000 something like 6,000 firms have signed up to to somehow cooperate and work together to provide uh, uh, PPE. So the numbers are phenomenal, and I'm quite anxious to hear some of the stories. Um, so let's start out with a, a question just about that about those stories actually to 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 Jan Westcott first um, about about um, some of the things that have happened in. In, in the alcohol industry, in the spirits industry, um, retooling to manufacture hand sanitizer. Like, take us through how you how you got how some of the firms that you you were familiar with got to those decisions to switch over. How hard it was, and um, you know if 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 this is actually um, you know significant in terms of supply in the country. I don't I don't think it was that difficult in terms of getting into it. Uh, most of what happened was people responding to local communities, uh, local hospitals, care centers, EMS, police, all looking for hand sanitizers. So those of it, those in the community that were still out working uh, made it. And in the hand sanitizer business, generally speaking, the main ingredient is alcohol. Most of them are between 60 and 80% alcohol. Uh, so you want a very uh, pure alcohol. Obviously the alcohol we make is People drink it, so it's high quality, it's for human consumption. So there was a natural fit. Um, companies like Harm Walker and Windsor 
responded to local uh, requests from people in Windsor, Windsor hospitals and those kinds of people and got into it. So that was the stage one. And then many, many small distillers and small brewers and um, others uh, because they had alcohol uh, also got into the business. It wasn't easy. Other uh, complications. Hand sanitizer is a regulated product under the Food and Drugs Act. You have to have approval from Health Canada. You have to have a formula. Um, it has to be made to certain standards. And so Health Canada was really good. Uh, we worked with them in expediting the process to get those approvals. Uh, same with same thing with the Canadian Revenue Agency. Um, alcohol, particularly 60 to 80 percent strength, is uh, is uh, would ordinarily attract excise tax. So. CRA worked to uh, streamline those processes to make sure that everybody was uh, operating inside the rules. So step one was making hand sanitizer. Um, Health Canada though came along and said, okay, that's terrific, all of this distributed stuff everywhere, but uh, we need to sort of step that up. And um, since you're in the alcohol business, can you provide alcohol to some of the larger manufacturers that are in the business that can scale up quickly so you get production at scale? And I think originally Health Canada's expectation was that the industry would supply 500,000 liters and we're up over well over a million liters a month now to large hand sanitizer manufacturers. We're in the alcohol business. Tweaking the business to make this particular alcohol um, was not that difficult, but you have to denature it. You have to put something in it so that it's not drinkable. Uh, finding those denaturants, getting them approved, uh, working those things out, that, those were really where the challenges were. So, and if we can turn a bit to, to Frank Bayless, um, I mean, your your company, I think, has a, a parallel story in the medical, medical equipment zone. Um, so can you tell us a bit a bit about what your company has done to to retool? How difficult was that, and and you know how you reached that decision about about how you how you should how you should adjust and and um, and and how significant the contribution is. So ours is. Probably very different than Jan's. It's a major undertaking. First of all, to build a ventilator, it's a life support system. It supports life. And that means that it's very specialized, highly intricate, and it has to be tested. You can't just build it and send it out there. It has to be highly tested. So first thing we need to do is get a hold of these parts. And all over the world, people are looking for the same parts. So we have a supply chain issue that it's not just ourselves. When people heard about not being able to get masks from the United States, that also was applied to ventilator parts. So we've been working with people around the world to get to just acquire the parts, the specialized sensors and motors and that. Then we need to test it. So there's all kinds of test equipment we need to get, which again, is just a, a global supply chain that we've been chasing down. Uh, people from the National Research Council have been helping us saying, there's one of those machines you need in this university, or there's one in this company. So we've had a tremendous challenge just to acquire the parts, acquire the test jigs, and acquire the uh, test fixtures. And we're not there yet. We, we are still chasing all these things down. So and and so how do you go about doing that? I mean, it sounds like we've heard the minister say that it's it's wild west, and we've heard some um, pretty intense stories about equipment and and parts and things being hijacked and 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 or not showing up and deliveries not coming through. I mean, how on earth do you go from, uh, you know, a, a domestic producer that's you know where everything's chugging along properly to you know having to to you know, fight tooth and nail for for basic materials? What, what what I would like to say is you hear the negative part, but there's so many people around the world that are helping us. We're working with the group that manufactures 
cars in Vietnam. And they're working, they've taken on responsibility for the blower. That's what delivers air in the ventilator. We're working obviously with some Chinese manufacturers. There's a group in France that specialize in how you balance the motor. And they're helping us how to balance motors, which we have to buy from Germany. And then we have a group in Ireland that specialize on how do you test this once you've got it built. And they're helping us. And as another good, good news story, we have in our regular business, our partners in Japan, and they often sent us 5,000 masks for our workers because they know that our workers are gonna need these masks while they're working. So there's tremendous amount of people working together around the world on that. And all those countries and more are helping us, including the United States, many people in the United States. Okay, thanks. It's nice to hear about some some goodwill and all of that uh, uh, to come coming forward. And uh, on that note, let, let's uh, turn to to Jerry Dias because um, you know clearly uh, the support of um, of of workforces throughout this whole transition is crucial. And I think my understanding is too also the source of many different ideas and how to how to transition um, auto manufacturing or just you know other types of manufacturing into um, into producing personal protective equipment and other things that are really needed. So can you fill us in a little bit in terms of the role of the unions or the role of the workforces in the switch over of manufacturing? Well, first of all, let me deal with our members that are working in long-term care facilities, healthcare in general, transit, grocery stores. The one thing that they are incredibly concerned about is obviously the carnage that they're dealing with each and every day, but the lack of personal protective equipment. So as much as we are doing everything we can as a nation to source parts, we're doing everything we can to provide the goods, uh, we are still dramatically undersupplied uh, for those workers that need it the most. So our members in long-term care facilities, for example, are going to work, they're afraid every day, they're sick, and when they're sick, the residents are sick. So we have a much broader issue that we uh, need to deal with when we get through this pandemic. Now, I look at a lot of our employers that have stepped up, uh, the General Motors, the Fords, the Woodbridge Foams, the Hiram Walkers, the Auto Lives, Martin, I can walk right through the list. But ultimately, this is really coming together during this time period uh, to pull together as a nation, but this is not a long-term business strategy for them. So exactly. the big question becomes, what do we do when we're finished? If anything, this pandemic showed us is how ill-prepared we are as a nation to take care of our own. And when I listen to Jan and I listen to Frank talk about global supply chains, that's what happens when you are completely self-reliant on others to provide the most basics of which to satisfy our individual needs. We can't even build a ventilator unless we, we connect with several other nations around the world. So I'm concerned about the basics. I'm concerned about the lack of masks, personal protective equipment. I am deeply concerned that as a nation, we may not learn a darn thing from us and that we may end up with a SARS down the road just like we dealt with years ago and here we are again depending on everybody else to provide us the goods and the question if we're being honest with each other were we at the top of the food chain when it came to providing the personal protective equipment or the supplies and the answer is no so i'm concerned about where we're at today i'm concerned i'm, I'm pleased with how everybody came to the pump but I'm really concerned that as a nation, that uh, what have we learned from it? And more importantly, what are we going to do about it? 
Um, I should have mentioned off the top that uh, if, if the audience wants to ask questions, you can put the, send them in in the questions box and we will get to them in a, uh, as many as we can in a, in a few minutes um, after I do a few more rounds here. Um, so in the questions box, please. Um, so so just picking up on, on, on what Jerry said there, Mr. Mr. Asasi, um, there is obviously a lot of concern that that um, you know that our domestic system is so interdependent on countries that um, are dealing with their own pandemic issues right now or just are not going to be <laughs> that cooperative in the future so your your um, you know your government has obviously tried to do quite a bit with your industrial strategy in terms of bringing bringing companies together um, to, to create those domestic supply chains how are they how are they holding up and um, you know how can how can can we make sure that that kind of domestic supply is is remains intact for as long as we need it? Well, uh, as you can imagine from uh, day one, the approach of our government uh, has been uh, all hands on deck, uh, and we've had a whole of government uh, approach to this. Now, uh, looking at it from today's perspective, uh, it's uh, one can only marvel that it's only been uh, six weeks since uh, the Prime Minister and Mr. Baines uh, announced a call to industry to uh, join us in the uh, fight against COVID. Uh, and what we have seen and what we've heard from the various participants is uh, the extent to which our uh, companies and our employees uh, have been innovative uh, to be responsive to the various uh, needs that have arisen. Um, just to give you a sense of the scale uh, of uh, cooperation that we've seen between uh, the Department of uh, Innovation, Science and Industry uh, and various companies uh, across the country. So far in the last six weeks, we have been cooperating very, very closely uh, with over 6,000 companies. Uh, and it really is a time to uh, look at uh, the incredible work uh, that companies in various different sectors across this country have done uh, in a short time span. So, I mean, it does sound like, you know, we keep hearing these stories and, 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 and it's, it does sound, you know, fantastic for, for a company to be able to find the flexibility and the, the ingenuity to, to, to flip over production like that. Um, but I, I, I also keep hearing that, um, you know, people, people are not making money at this and, um, you know, clearly that's not the first priority right now, but there is a long-term damage that's being felt there. Um, so I, I'm wondering if we can, you know, hear from, uh, from, from either Frank Bayless or, or Jen Westcott about how, you know, how do you, how do you do the long term like this? I mean, this is I, my understanding is that this is a, a stopgap measure to help the country, but it's not a business venture for the long term. I, I don't, and I don't think in our particular case, I don't think it will be a business venture in the long term. Uh, we already supply alcohol, bulk alcohol to a number of different um, um, uh, sectors, uh, pharmaceutical, cosmetics, um, very pure, very high quality. Um, and so I think the business will revert. I do think that many of the smaller producers, uh, the small distillers and some of the small brewers have now seen this as a business opportunity, as an extension of their regular business. And I do think some of them, some of them have said already, they intend to stay in this for the long term. Um, whether they have the distribution, uh, or not, as I said earlier, you know, when Harm Walker decided to make hand sanitizer, uh, they were very fortunate in being able to turn to a number of Jerry's uh, locals in the Windsor area 
to help them get it out to uh, places. So you have to, there, there are many parts of the business. Um, and as I said, we're supplying a, an ingredient to people that make this already. So I think as we see, clearly there's gonna be a growth in the demand for hand sanitizer. I do think the conventional industry seeing that will step up and be able to satisfy that on a, on a normal basis. So I think I, I do think that we'll be in this for longer than everybody believes, um, because I think that demand will be there until the more uh, uh, standard part of the industry takes over and produces it. But um, I think for us, unlike Frank's situation, where once you start making ventilators, there's so much uh, that you've invested, you're going to be in that business uh, for some period of time uh, uh, satisfying that demand. Ours is a little bit different. From our, yeah, I'd say from our perspective, first thing when, when this COVID hit, obviously we want to protect our workers and we want to try and maintain full employment for them, which is, which is very hard because we saw who could work from home. Keeping in mind that we make medical products that are used in heart surgeries, a lot of those surgeries were postponed, but they can only be postponed for so long and they are now starting to come back online. So we have a duty to make those products. But what we did is we said, we have to preserve our cash. So like many companies, we stopped spending here, we stopped spending there, anything we could do to preserve our cash. Then the government put out this challenge and we said, look, we're more than willing to step up, but we have to buy all these parts and we don't have, we cannot risk our money there. So the government, when they gave us this contract, they gave us a down payment, which was critical for us to be able to go out and, and secure these parts all over the world, as Jerry said, that we needed to do because we didn't have the financial power. And if we did, if they didn't help us that way, we couldn't have done what we needed to do to, to ramp up so fast. So we did have we did have the support there in that sense. Now, in this particular business that we're in, we're making a ventilator that's designed by a company called Medtronics. It's the largest medical device company in the world. And they put this out there and said, look, if someone wants to take up this challenge, here's the plans and everything, and we'll give you what we call permissive license. You can actually do this without breaking any of our patents and all that. And then they identified a couple of companies one was ourselves, another one in Vietnam, and Foxconn, which makes the Apple phone and all that, and said, okay, we will work tightly with you. Why did they choose us? Because we have a side of our business, which is designing and manufacturing products for other companies. And we already had contracts with Medtronics, where we design and manufacture products for them that are sold under their name. And they said, okay, you have this kind of expertise. You know us, we know you. Can you help us? And can we work together to design these ventilators and we took on specifically for Canada. So we don't know when we're done, if they'll say to us, can you keep helping us? But that has been the, the, the path that we're working towards. So we do think that we will be in this business one way or another for, for quite a while now. So Mr. Sassi, what, what do you do more generally um, over the long term then? If, if okay, so, so, you know, Mr. Bayless will remain in that, in this line of business over the long term, but uh, I, I, I suspect most manufacturers will want to get back to their to their day job as soon as possible where they can actually make some money. And then what do we do about the stockpiles and, and assuring that we have enough supplies on hand for, for round two or God forbid, round three? Well, um, I think it's uh, several things are important to bear uh, in mind. Uh, first of all, um, I think right now at this juncture, we're just focused on uh, providing all those things that are so critical 
to our frontline uh, health workers, to essential workers, uh, and to Canadian families. So that has been uh, the challenge we have focused on uh, so far, whether it be uh, in terms of uh, procuring and producing uh, face masks, uh, face shields, uh, hand sanitizers, ventilators, um, and uh, scientific discoveries. Uh, but it's important that we remain nimble. Um, I think everyone can tell you uh, that we have remained focused, uh, we've been working around the clock, and we've been very nimble in terms of our response. Uh, so uh, it's important that we maintain our focus uh, and as needs arise, uh, that we be there um, and we partner with, uh, with incredible Canadian companies that have really demonstrated day after day that they're very innovative um, and they can retool and uh, scale up uh, and be there for uh, Canadians across the country. Hello, this is Andrew Cardozo of the Pearson Centre. The Centre is a progressive think tank that facilitates thoughtful debate and dialogue while encouraging action on the issues that matter to Canadians. The Pearson Podcast is our latest venture in our efforts to lead the Canadian conversation surrounding COVID and beyond. However, we cannot do this without your support. There has never been a more important time for thinking big about Canada's future, nor a greater need for your support. To make a financial contribution to support projects like the Pearson Podcast, please visit thepearsoncenter.ca forward slash contribute. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Jerry Dias, I'm interested in what what you've um, taken so far from this crisis in terms of, I mean, you mentioned concerns of, well, pretty big concerns about, about frontline workers and essential workers not having proper equipment. Is that improving at all? And I mean, we've got all these efforts going on to, to get the PPE produced. Um, is it getting to those workers? Is it getting to them fast enough? And then what do we do if we get a little bit of a breather here to make sure that they get the, the they actually have safe working conditions for the next time around? Well, first of all, it's not getting to them quick enough, especially the long-term care facilities. I'm on the phone with them each and every day and people are petrified. So there, we need to stockpile and we can't ever get caught in this type of a predicament again. But I will argue that our successive governments have dropped the ball for decades. Uh, we've lost about 560,000 manufacturing jobs in the last 15 years. And when you lose manufacturing jobs, you lose the ability to ramp up so we really are a nation that's, that is a crossroads. And I'm thinking as, as I'm watching, I'm listening to the panel about the debate that I have all the time with politicians, with the right, with people in Canada, when the governments rightly will give money to the bombardiers of the world, will give money to the auto industries of the world and say that manufacturing jobs are important. And I argue till I'm blue in the face, but those that are saying, ah, no bailouts, no bailouts. No, here we are in a crisis. Who's building? Personal Protective Equipment, Bombardier and Thunder Bay, General Motors in Oshawa, Ford and Oakville, the auto parts plants, the manufacturing sector that has the ability to pivot. And that's why I can't get my head around people that just don't understand the basics of a vibrant economy and why it's so important. So the only issue becomes is this is critical. We can never get caught without these essential supplies again, which means we're gonna to need to encourage people to stay in the business. General Motors is not gonna build masks in the long term. They have the ability to, but they're not going to. Noro Martin Rhea, Magna, Linamar, I can walk through the list. So who's in? Frank's in. Who else is in? We need to sit 
put them and put together a strategy that says, listen, we need you. So how do we put together a business case that keeps people employed, but more importantly, keeps us safe as a nation? Frank laid it out better than anybody, just talking from the inside of how you run a business. And we are so dependent, so dependent on other nations to keep ourselves safe. And we can argue cost all day long. But when people are dying, cost can't be the predominant factor. I, I just want to add to, if I could, I just want to underline what Jerry said. He's absolutely right. It's because we had this skill set and we had these factories and that. And to his point that Canadians could be looked after because a lot of companies, as Ali had said, 6,000 could pivot and say, okay, we, we still exist in that. So there is there are strong arguments that Jerry's made there that I, that I would agree with. So maybe, um, Mr. Sassi, this is a question for you then, like maybe if, you know, over the, in, in, in the medium to long term, this is something that the country absolutely needs, but there's no business case to be made for it. There is a government case from a public policy point of view that it has to be like, is this something that we take on in the future to make sure we have proper PPE for the long term, like some kind of shipbuilding type of strategy, you know, like it would take a lesson from the defense industries, for example, where we make sure that we have our own domestic production and that it's made um, viable with government help. Well, uh, to uh, Jerry's uh, point, I think it's important that uh, lessons be learned uh, from the challenges that we've experienced over the course of the past uh, several months. Uh, there's no doubt that um, we are incredibly indebted and grateful to uh, uh, to the innovation of so many Canadian companies. Uh, but of course, at a time like this, uh, once we can take our focus off, uh, you know, some of the priorities, there are definitely gonna be uh, lessons to be learned. And much like uh, uh, Canadian companies that have pivoted, it's the job of the, the government to pivot as well and to make sure uh, that we're not just there uh, today, but we also have a good uh, appreciation of the challenges on the horizon. Heather, um, I just also like to mention Spirits Canada came together with the cosmetic, cosmetics industry uh, and with the Specialty Products Association to create the exchange. One of the things that that's going to do is that as actually bringing people into the hand sanitizer production business, some of whom weren't there before, but some other companies that were sort of peripheral to it have now seen the opportunity and um, so I think coming out of this, you are going to see some structural changes. The the uh, most of what's gone on, as Frank has said, has been business to business. The exchange has worked very well. It's connected these people together, um, and so I do think that that's going to have a lasting impact on sort of how the hand sanitizer, potentially the disinfectant business, uh, uh, um, transforms over the next uh, say three to six months to, to a year. So there are changes taking place that, that you are going to see these businesses continue in some of this kind of thing. Cosmetics companies that really didn't do hand sanitizer have now looked at this and said, yeah, this is something that we want to look at uh, as, a, as a fundamental part of our business. So you are seeing those changes take place. Yeah, I can't actually imagine a day where I'm going to turn, I'm going to choose lipstick over hand sanitizer for a very long time, to be honest, seriously, from a consumer point of view. Um, just to, to turn to the audience here for for, for, for a moment or two, um, I have a, a message for Frank Bayless. Uh, the Bayless story is a fine example of working closely with global partners in difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. Success will depend largely on the goodwill of our fine Canadian company that, that the company has with partners who can make or break this challenging initiative. Good luck, Frank. Um, Thank you.
Thank so you. there's a question here um, for for um, Jan Westcott and, and Frank Bayless. Um, when you retooled, what did you do to retrain workers to work on these new products? So in this in the beverage alcohol business, what we're doing is we're pr providing a slightly different type of alcohol. We're blending it with denaturants to be able to use outside of uh, consumption purposes, or at least internal consumption. Um, and mostly, I would say. Uh, the skill sets inside the distilleries are significant that they could do that quite easily. The challenge had been finding the other pieces to um, finding the other pieces. Surprisingly, one of the biggest challenges we found is that we're large producers. When alcohol leaves plants, uh, if it leaves it in bulk, it goes in a tanker truck. Many, many, many of the businesses are not able to take uh, a tanker truck full of alcohol. They don't have the supplies, they don't have the storage, those kinds of things. So there are a lot of changes that are taking place to do that. But inside the inside the distilleries and inside most of the, uh, certainly the larger breweries, those skills exist for sure. Yeah. Um, so, Mr. Yeah, for, for ourselves, first of all, to acquire these workers, because we are busy making our own products because we have responsibilities to the patients that rely on that we're part of a group called ventilators for canada and there's a number of manufacturers in southern ontario an important one danby that makes con consumer appliances and that they're supplying us with a lot of the uh employees the people that are going to do the actual assembly then what we did is we begged board and stole well forget steal but we beg and board to get units that existed out there that we could then take apart put together take apart so that our engineers could learn the best ways to manufacture them and we're now in the process of training these people so you can see how again this has all come together and the factory in galway ireland where these original systems are built they are teaching us and giving us tours of visual, virtual tours of their plant how that how it works now keep in mind all this has to be done in a new way the covid way now so in the past, obviously employee safety is a primary objective for all employers, but suddenly you, your things that you would do this way because it's very efficient and safe, they're no longer safe. So we have to read, even though this is how you would normally build a ventilator, we can't build the ventilator that way in the COVID world because we can't have people coming together and all that. So that's added a whole new layer of complexity on how to build these devices. And, and we're working our way through that. Um, Jerry, maybe could you talk a little bit about about that, like health and safety in in the workplace? Because I I think um, you know right now we're seeing premiers opening up some of the economies and um, and 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 pushing uh, in a direction that 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 some of the workforces are not particularly happy with um, and and worried about their their health and safety of their of their of their workers. Um, you know how how do you see that playing out? And and is is there enough cooperation out there to make sure that that the you know the the political imperative to get people back to work is is actually done safely well the political imperative isn't going to do anybody any good because at the end of the day workers are going to make a decision based on what they think is in their best interest um people are nervous and justifiably so i mean we have employers now in long-term care facilities that are okaying workers that have tested positive to come back to work it's like having colonel sanders taking care of the chickens it doesn't make any sense to me but when you're dealing with a, a structure based on profit, such as the Cargills of the world, 
our food processing here in Canada, it, it, that's, that's another game altogether. So here you have two major food, food, uh, food processors, beef processors in Canada, Cargill and uh, JBS, control 95% of beef processing. You've got over 900 workers have tested positive in Alberta, and they're reopening. I can assure you the there will be more work refusals than you can shake a stick at because people are afraid. So in that circumstance, Cargill didn't even reach out to the union. They just were dealing publicly saying, look, we've got all the medical health advisors on board. And we've spoken to everybody. Well, you better speak to the union because the union are going to speak to your employees. So people are nervous and justifiably so. So uh, there's a major push in some circumstances to get people back to work. I'm not sure it's a great strategy. We can't blow up the economy, but we can't have more people dying, or you're going to end up with a much worse economic hit than you would have taken if you'd have played it smart the first time around. Um, okay, I have a question for um, everybody here. Um, when it comes to, to starting up the economy again, will those companies that have um, retooled, will they have to... Will they be in a better position to relaunch or are they going to have to re-retool and and does that does that set them ahead or does that does that does that kind of tie their hands a little bit in terms of relaunching who wants to take that one i'll go first the companies i'm dealing with this is this isn't their main business so it's not as if gm is disrupting what they can do internally or ford or woodbridge foam or anybody uh this is equipment that they brought in uh, to get into the personal protective equipment in the sanitizer field. Um, so they are doing this over and above. So will it have any sort of a negative impact to their transition back uh, to their regular work? The answer is no. So they can bounce back pretty quickly into their into their um, into their their traditional niche, I guess. People will go back to work on Monday and there won't be a hiccup. I would I would echo what uh, Jerry's saying. Uh, this is over and above what we ordinarily do. Um, some some companies have suspended or uh, limited their regular business in order to um, supply alcohol. Um, many of the smaller distilleries across the country are making hand sanitizer, have scaled back a little bit on their production of their uh, alcohol for consumption. So I, I think it it won't be. It'll be a bit of a change, but it won't be a massive change to go back to what we're doing. Um, and many companies that have agreed to do this, um, a number have said, yeah, we'll do it and we're going to sell it at cost. We're not going to make money on it. So I think there will be some uh, interest in getting back to the normal business uh, cycle. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen as quickly as some people believe. From our, from our perspective, I just add that we never stop doing what we, we do anyways because we supply products that are needed for important surgeries. So this is above and beyond. In this case, we're pulling and we're working with other companies that are supplying us uh, supervisors, supplying us with um, employees to manufacture. We rented new locales, which we're building out into. So there's that aspect. Now, one thing we did do is we moved a lot of our engineers because there's a tremendous amount of engineering work from other projects that were uh, distance projects, not ones that we needed in the next six months or a year, but we moved them into this ventilator program. That we're gonna have to figure out when the dust sells. We don't have an, I don't have an answer how it'll all settle, but, but we have moved those people that we'll have to get back to the regular jobs at some point. Well, uh, what I would add to that is uh, this is certainly uh, given 
all the contributions that are being made uh, across the country. This is the largest uh, mobilization of industry and the scientific community uh, we have seen in peacetime. So uh, obviously there are adjustments to be made. Um, and our job really is to remain nimble and to facilitate the process uh, as we emerge from this challenge. So just to follow up on that, the sentiment of, 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 of um, being nimble, um, the, uh, there's a question here for you, another question, um, is the government involved in providing materials that workers may need to return to work, like the masks and the gloves, et cetera, is, is the government involved in that? Absolutely. Um, what we have done is we have focused, uh, uh, as I said at the outset, on uh, being there for the uh, procurement and the production of uh, face masks, uh, face shields, uh, hand sanitizers um, uh, for uh, kits and testing. Uh, so that's what we've been focused on over the course of the past uh, six weeks. And, um, and you will see in the, in the coming weeks a, a huge scale up uh, in terms of the production by Canadian companies of every single one of these goods. Um, there's another question, just on a little bit of a different subject here of, about um, about foreign aid, I think, and helping in, in Africa. So the, the government was beginning to pay attention to trade with Africa. How does the pandemic alter that plan? And will Canada, what will Canada do to combat uh, COVID in Africa? Um, and I guess I would add to that too, you know, when we are so desperate for supplies ourselves, how do we make sure that we are also taking care of that international um, need, which is, seems to be growing? I guess that's a question for Mr. for the Parliamentary Secretary. Well, um, we have been consistent throughout. Um, we have uh, recognized full well that this is a global pandemic, uh, and we've maintained, uh, you know, partnerships uh, across the world and working in multilateral institutions. Uh, so this is certainly not a time to uh, step back. Uh, we understand the scale of this and uh, appreciate that it's in our best interest to be there for other countries as well. I, I would add to that is that what, what we're seeing is obviously these what I'll call first world countries, the countries that have a lot of money behind them and all that, they're racing out and they're going to get the first ones to get building things like ventilators now. But to, to Ali's point, our governments will have to start to think about once the, once we get control of our situation, how do we help the less fortunate ones who don't have the, the money and weight and power that a Canadian a, a country like Canada has that then there is a certain responsibility we will have because this is a global pandemic that we need to once we get our own house in order how do we help other people so we can't do it concurrently we have to get our own house in order first and then help them I would uh, I would tell you that right now what I see with respect to ventilators these are very expensive pieces of medical equipment and I know of many countries that are looking for them and how do they get themselves positioned? Which, which, where do they buy them? Who takes care of them? All those questions are being asked. But obviously, we're a G7 country. We're a wealthy country by global standards. So we, we have more heft than, say, some countries you measured, mentioned Africa, which are going to be hit and are being hit by the pandemic as well. So I'm just saying we have that responsibility. Our focus right now is obviously Canada, and that's that's we're a Canadian company focused on helping Canadians. But I think once we get our house in order, that we can start to look at those other helping others less fortunate than us. 
Okay, I have, we have just, I'm going to try to squeeze in one last question here. <laughs> so um, it's about outsourcing um, and it's directed to whoever wants to answer it. Um, why has Canada outsourced so much medical production to other countries like China, which are so unreliable and are we going to rethink outsourcing? Well, I'll argue that probably one of the better free trade deals we've signed in in decades were in after where we actually started to talk about workers it wasn't a preoccupation on the lowest common denominator about work and we source things cheaper it was the first trade deal uh, that we actually talked about workers in canada the united states and mexico it's going to take quite a while before things change but there's always been this historical right-wing push for the lowest the cheapest and that we need it to be competitive so we need to chase the lowest common denominator boy that's really proved well for us today um so i think there's a much broader discussion because let's think about it i mean harper couldn't bar bargain himself out of a wet paper bag i would argue the free trade deal that we signed with korea was a total disaster the tpp another mess and if you look at the trade agreements uh we went from a nation uh, 25 years ago that had a trade surplus in manufacturing to a $20 billion deficit today. So that's because we've taken our eye off the ball and that's because of philosophical uh, differences, a fundamental philosophical difference that says, look, we're just gonna outsource our economy. And I think, think people are looking at things a little differently today. I think we need to be a little more self-sufficient and this pandemic I think has shown that. I think it's gonna be a, a question of balance, Heather. Um, in our particular business, uh, and I think in a number of Jerry's uh, members in the companies they work for, we sell a lot of our goods outside of Canada. So in Canada, 75% of what the distillers make is exported. That's an important market for us. Yep. Um, I think so it's a it's that balance. On some things, we yep. have let it go too far, perhaps, and we need to bring some of that back. But, you know, we enjoy a very high standard of living for 35 million people. Uh, and part of that is our has been our success in being uh, traders and exporters. Um, I think, uh, you know, as we go through time, some of these trade agreements are going to be a little more robust, perhaps like NAFTA. But the fact that we can sell our goods around the world um, uh, means that we're going to be in that uh, global trading environment. Uh, as I said, I think it's a question of balance. We have to make sure that we're satisfying our global uh, customers while also making sure that we look after Canada and where is that balance going to settle out? No, he's right. Trade has to be a two-way street. We sell you something and, uh, you know, it, it's got to go back and forth. We buy, you buy. It's, it's not like that in the automobile industry, I can assure you of that. We import so much more than we export and we get hammered on so many different industries. So you're right, we're an export nation and that can never change. We just got to use our head a little bit um, as we're moving forward. A mantra for the ages. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to uh, to hand it over to uh, to um, Sandra Pupatelli here to uh, to to um, wrap things up. I really appreciate Heather you coming forward to moderate our session for us.
great representation from business. Jan and Frank, uh, I think it's notable. Uh, Allie, that you would give us the time today with everything you've got swirling around in your world of government right now, and we very much appreciate the heavy lifting that you're doing. Um, I just want to say, Jerry, thank you. Take care of your workers, because we know that you're hard-pressed and you're out there on the front line. To everybody who is watching today, I hope you found this of interest, and note that the Pearson Center, a centrist think tank, is continuing this kind of work. Please um, get on our mailing list so we can let you know when we've got more great sessions pending with great panelists like you've seen here today. Thanks for participating to all our great panelists and moderator. Thanks, everybody.